I'm starting this morning by quoting from Karl Barth, B-A-R-T-H, the great Swiss-German theologian, died about 1986, whose 13 or 14 volumes of church dogmatics is the summary of his lifetime thought and uh, a great figure. And this is one of those volumes. And he speaks of covenant out from creation. He goes back to the point of earliest beginning that creation and covenant are inextricably linked. That if God had no other reason to create but to establish a format and a framework for the establishing of covenant, that would be sufficient ground. Because the heart of covenant is I will be your God and you will be my people. So then there needs to be of necessity a people and there needs to be of necessity a God who can honor that promise. And in the declaration of this covenant and its fulfillment is the revelation of God himself as he in fact is. If you don't see God in covenant, you don't see God. So I'll quote and we'll see where it leads us. speaks of creation as an incomparable act. We mustn't presume for the created order as if it's matter of fact and has necessarily to come. It's God's divine initiative. He had no need for it. It only opened him to a whole assortment of problems and aggravations for which he could have been spared because he knew that with the advent of creation and of man there would be fallenness, there would be sin, transgression, and that his son himself would have to be the expiation of that sin. And yet, he did not hesitate. So we need to respect the act of creation, which is under fire now, in all of the fervor about uh, intelligent design and uh, evolution. The, the modern world wants to deny God as creator. But we need to plead to this foundational concept because everything issues from it. It's an act of God out of his own love and out of his own initiative and uh, ma makes possible covenant and all of the reality that follows. Though he is all wholly self-sufficient and absolutely glorious and blessed in his inner life, he did not as such will to be alone. Covenant is relationship. Covenant is not a contract. I'll do this for you, and then you've got to do this for me. It's the establishing of a relationship. And out of the appreciation of the relationship, and the love that it engenders, you keep the covenant. But your keeping of it is not its condition. You're not being rewarded for your keeping. So, it's establishing a relationship between God and His people in which he reveals himself as the faithful God of promise. I will. This is the freedom of his love, an act of the overflowing of his inward glory. It says of the world that it received through an act of God the reality, existence, and form, which it did not have and could not therefore give itself, because it did not exist at all. This is not creation out of an accident, some collision in the heavens and some ha haphazard physiological thing with 
spectra. This is God's act. It's the absolute gift of God. It is His good pleasure, free omnipotence of the divine love. The reality elected and posited, posited by this divine good pleasure, established and determined and limited by this omnipotence of His love. God is love, and that love required creation. That He would not be alone. That there would be relationship and fellowship with His creatures. And that that would be in a bond of covenant by which He takes the initiative. Israel is only on the receiving side. The terms are stated by God. He initiates covenant as He has initiated creation. We have only to accept it or to reject it. And we know that the rejection in the history of Israel has been costly and is costly to this day. It's a slight against His love. So in the chapter on creation and covenant, he wants to make possible the history of God's covenant with man which has its beginning, its center, and its culmination in Jesus Christ. The history of this covenant is as much the goal of creation as creation itself is the beginning of history. So it's not an exaggeration to say God established creation in order to establish covenant. If he went that far, how significant the phenomenon is covenant? How much ought it to be esteemed? if it required the whole bringing into being that which, which was not and opening to God all of the, the problems and weight of things that he need not have suffered if he continued to choose to be alone but the creation as the basis for covenant is the act of his love it's a first work the covenant of grace before partnership in which he has predestined and called man man had to be created to be the object of covenant and uh, therefore to miss that identification and to live in independence of that covenant and the God who calls men to it is to live a fractured uh, life to be out of sorts to be out of joint this is the normative intention of God created man that he should be in covenant relationship with him with a great promise I will be your God you will be my people and at the end of the age in Jeremiah 30 31 this is exactly the statement that is reiterated in the new covenant that is everlasting creation sets the stage for the story of the covenant of grace it has everything to do with the triune Godhead and the agreement of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit to God's enterprise with man in the world. So, there's a collaboration in heaven, so to speak, within the Godhead itself about the fact of creation and its object, namely, covenant with man, and that the Son himself will one day have to come as the mediator of that covenant and the bearer of the curse of the covenant. But knowing that, God did not withhold, nor did the Son, nor the Holy Spirit. So there's an agreement in the Godhead itself, from the beginning, for creation and its purpose. We need, we need to get back 
you can't go back further than creation but we need to go back to it in a sense of appreciation and esteem or else um, it's dismissed as if it's a fact of life that has come in and of itself no it's a chosen act of God with the intention of blessing man and the ultimate blessing that I will be your God and you will be my people is that we will be in union together and you will even share in my divinity and in my spirit and in my life and that will be the ultimate expression of the covenant blessedness for which you are intended because Israel is the first nation selected the first creation of God and therefore the first work of his word was light in its separation from darkness only in its separation from light is darkness also created and therefore the creature of God the subject is natural light and natural darkness natural darkness as that which declares the reality which was rejected by God and has therefore vanished and natural light as that which proclaims the will of God opposed to it it is natural light as such which is the irresistible and irrevocable declaration of life so he goes back to creation and in the beginning God said let there be light and light came before the establishment of the luminaries that's the fourth act of God is the creation of the moon and the stars which are just vehicles for the continuation of the expression of light but light is God and that was invoked from the beginning the first act of God let there be light and light challenges the darkness and it's in that light that we're called to live and walk and have our being and even that the creation of light is an act of grace is a covenantal blessing for man that we should not wallow in darkness and have the light of life the light that came upon Paul on the road to Damascus was brighter than the noonday sun it was the original light that came with the first act of creation and in that light Paul caught glimpse of the Lord whom he had formerly persecuted and, and experienced a total revision of his understanding that made everything of the past to be as death and dust it, it blinded him and uh, I'm fond of saying that anyone who has received so superb an entree into the faith by which he became the chief apostle and to whom was given the great revelation of the mysteries of God and the mystery of Israel and the church that we need to dwell on that revelation and that man as the source for the church of the profoundest kind for the last days because he began in a light greater than the light of the noonday sun it did not come by his speculation by the operation of his own brilliant mind it came by a flash of light from heaven in which he saw such things as as affected everything for his apostolic and eternal future so what issues from him from that light should be for us the most commendable source of uh, guidance and for the last days so Paul is suffering a kind of uh, neglect as if he's some kind of uh, strange creature and has his own thoughts and having no more 
credibility than others don't. He's foremost. Because to no other apostle came such revelation, such apprehension on the road to Damascus as, as what he experienced. It's a light that we could ask for ourselves, although we, we may at first have to suffer a blindness and the languish for three days, neither eating nor drinking, as his life was reviewed before him, and he um, forsook all the things to which he had previously submitted as the leading student of the Rabbi Gamaliel. Talk about conversion. The man was controverted. He was completely turned inside out and his whole understanding he saw in the face of Jesus the light of the glory of God one glimpse of that face in that light changes everything we, we can't do more than to ask some measure of a revelation of that kind well I think we ought to look at the classicus locus which means the classic text on the subject of covenant is the Abrahamic covenant. Every covenant from the Noah right through to the new covenant is in some way an adumbration or development of what was initially given Abraham. That's the centerpiece and in it are all the quintessential constitutive factors of covenant. So in Genesis 15 we need to dwell on that giving and see what it will teach us because there also is an issue of darkness and of light I'm reading from the Amplified after these things the word of the Lord came to Abraham in a vision saying fear not Abram I am your shield your abundant compensation and your reward shall be exceedingly great and Abram said Lord God what can you give me since I'm going on from this world childless and he shall be the owner and heir of my house is the steward Eliezer of Damascus and Abraham continued look you have given me no child and a servant born in my house is my heir and behold the word of the Lord came to him saying this man shall not be your heir but he who shall come from your own body shall be your heir so everything begins with God speaking God taking the initiative God the creator and so the Lord said the word of the Lord came to Abraham Abram in a vision fear not and then again in the fourth verse the word of the Lord came to him saying this man shall not be your heir and he brought him outside the tent into the starlight and said look now toward the heavens and count the stars if you are able to number them then he said to him so shall your descendants be Abraham believed and trusted and relied on remained steadfast to the Lord and he counted it to him as righteousness, right standing with God and he said to him I am the Lord who brought you out of Ur of the Chaldees to give you this land as an inheritance but Abraham said Lord God by what shall I know that I shall inherit it and he said to him bring to me a heifer three years old, a sheep goat three years old, a ram three years old, a turtle dove and a young pigeon and he brought him all these and cut them down the middle into halves and laid each half opposite the other but the birds he did not divide and when the birds of prey swooped down upon the carcasses Abram drove them away when the sun was setting a deep sleep overcame Abram and a horror, a terror, a shuddering fear 
of great darkness assailed and oppressed him. And God said to Abram, Know positively that your descendants will be strangers dwelling as temporary residents in a land that is not theirs, and will be slaves there, and they will be afflicted and oppressed for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on that nation whom they will serve, and afterwards they shall come out with great possessions. So this text is interspersed with uh, the act of establishing covenant through pieces cut in half, and then references to Israel's future history. It's, a, it's like a weave in a tapestry that we need to uh, graciously, gently move through. The fact that the sun went down and that Abraham was greatly afraid and a terror came over him, what do you suppose that designates? Why, why would the establishment of the classic covenant, which will be the pattern the template of all covenants including the concluding everlasting covenant invoke immediately a terror of fear, a darkness birds falling on the, of prey falling on the carcass There's a, it's a, this is a remarkable drama this almost needs a Wagnerian musical backdrop to get the full drama of this, this is not some light transaction, this is if the heavens themselves are pulsating and trembling because something is being struck with the father of faith that will affect all subsequent generations and the interesting thing is that Abraham himself does not pass through the pieces in a covenant of the classic kind where the word brit, the name brit means a cutting as a word for covenant the two partners who are in agreement pass through the cut pieces indicating that if either party fails they are making a bond unto death and they invoke upon themselves the death that is uh, symbolized or expressed by these cut animals and yet God does not require Abraham to move through these pieces in fact as we learn he sleeps through the occasion and God himself alone walks through the pieces and that's already predictive of the everlasting covenant that I will make with you in those days and put my law in your hearts and every man will know me from the least to the greatest as if uh, this is all my baby your, your failure at covenant keeping is notorious but I'll establish a covenant that will be everlasting because I who give it will also keep it and I'm symbolizing and signifying that by walking through these pieces now but how can God himself then be a candidate to suffer the death of a failed covenant the curse of a failed covenant what he's doing is implicating his son who will come as the mediator of the covenant to bear its curse and to fulfill the vengeance of the covenant by his own death and the shedding of his own blood that's why Jesus said at the Passover table at the last supper this is my blood given in the new covenant for you so dwell on this text the details of it so out of tune with our age so in verse 17 when the sun had gone down and a thick darkness had come on lo a smoking oven and a flaming torch passed between those pieces now on the same day the Lord made a covenant promise a pledge with Abraham saying to your descendants I have given this land 
from the river of Egypt to the great river Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, the Kenizzites, the Cadmonites, the Hittites, Perizzites, the Rephaim, the Amorites, the Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. So we need to note that the very first establishment of the covenant is not some airy and ethereal spiritual blessing, Mm -hmm. although it is that, but a concrete, specific giving of land. Mm -hmm. The land is a covenant provision of God for Abraham and for his descendants. But the heck of it is, they cannot possess that land except as being in covenant with God. If you're out of covenant, you're candidates for expulsion. And that's the expulsion that we anticipate and must necessarily come. Mm -hmm. Because in 1948, with the establishment of the State of Israel through secular and socialist men, there was not a fig of understanding about the land as a covenant provision. But they just assumed that out of the necessity of the Holocaust and the need for homeland, uh, the political factors then operative, that they could go in and begin to establish what only God could give and and what could only be kept in covenant bond. But we mustn't assume that because God works in history to enable a a return of a sort, that that is the fulfillment of uh, his covenant purposes. Rather, it's to show Israel in its failure that it cannot succeed independent of covenant relationship. Because in covenant relationship is the grace given to be to the stranger what we ought, who is in the land. And the treatment of the uh, Palestinian is a clear indication that uh, secular Israel was incapable of any relationship of that kind. In fact, their treatment was so harsh and often so unjust that it exacerbated that people to a frenzy that they think that their children's that their children being living bombs is a just a sacrifice. There's a vehemence and a bitterness among the Palestinians for a history of slight being uprooted, being mistreated, having their lands taken and misappropriated, and various other intimidating acts by which Israel sought to maintain a control, but could not be to the stranger in their midst what only a covenant grace would enable. It's one thing to be to your own, but to be to the stranger, gracious and kind, requires a grace from God. And that grace is the expression of God given in covenant relationship with him. He has seen to it that you cannot succeed independent of that covenant. And so there's a short duration, and maybe the intention of God is to indicate to Israel because what are we Jews but supreme humanists that you cannot succeed independent of me you took a brave stab at it you transformed the malarial swampland you established a high tech civilization but in the end you precipitated your own destruction and now you will be cast out of the land and 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 in your being cast out you may consider and repent and find (coughs) your God and turn to him and he'll restore you to covenant and to to the land as a covenant keeper so this is a drama of such proportions of course we desire a quick and easy solution the state is established it's not doing too well but it will improve but the issue of improvement is exactly the issue of humanism 
improvement implies that by human thought and ability, prowess, man can succeed in gradually altering his circumstance. But what, what uh, Israel has got to see is that the best of our intentions will come back into our teeth and that we have, we're reaching a humanly insoluble condition uh, that without God we cannot remain in the land. So he's, this is a circuitous long route of a, a, a momentary historic return uh, getting established in a way in which you would think it a pity that those great cities have to be tumbled and the great uh, towers of Tel Aviv have to come down and the great numbers of Ethiopian and Russian immigrants will be among the casualties of the devastation of the last days but so is the great cost that when Jesus comes two thirds of Israel have already perished and the one third must necessarily pass through the fire and be to him a restored remnant so this, this touches last night's conversation how far will God go and what, what is at stake here is God's provision of Israel for the nations that you're called to be a nation of priests and a light unto the world you're not called to be a success in yourself and to say look my no hands you're called to minister to the nations but only out of a brokenness of a people who learn their own sin and, and come to a place of contrition and are able to come to their former enemies and bring the knowledge of the mercy of God which they themselves have received after they have experienced his judgments so there, it's a costly training for a priestly nation but there's no shortcut and uh, there's no shortcut for us and we, we, all, we have a comparable calling and a comparable requirement to know the Lord through dealings that we can minister the reality of God not just as a correct doctrine but a reality tempered in our own life and experience because that's what priesthood is the world is dying the world is in a substandard condition for the want of Israel's presence among the nations as a priestly nation that's right you need to know that the great profanation that is sweeping the world the ugliness of culture the universality of its low taste is all a statement of the absence of a people called to teach the, the nations the difference between the sacred and the profane but the heck of it is that there's hardly a more profane people on the earth today than Israelis themselves. They are tattooed, pockmarked, uh, engraved, earringed, stomach ringed, tongue ringed, nose ringed, peak haired, they're freaking out. Their youth, their generation, everything that God says that you should not do, you should not be tattooed, they do. They're into the worst aspects of culture, and even in America, the leaders of the rap music industry are Jews the entertainment industry all of the kinds of things that are degrading somehow have their emanation from us in our genius and our ability to find profit in it so we're functioning exactly in an opposite way to the divine intention and the world is paying the price I even have a secret theory about the root of anti-Semitism that is an unconscious resentment on the part of the world of Israel's failure to be to the nations what we ought. 
that somehow the world senses something wanting in that failure and it, it issues in a resentment against that people and that will never be met again until Israel fulfills its destiny but to go from its present condition to that of a true priesthood will be through the road to Calvary and Isaiah 53 is not only the description of the Lord's suffering it's a description of the suffering of the nation that will be marred more than any man and that they will have no beauty that any should desire them when they are expelled out from Israel and elsewhere in the nations and are hated and pursued they're going to experience in measure what came upon the Lord himself and in that suffering there will be a recognition a glimmer oh for our transgressions he was stricken oh he went to the lamb as a slaughter silently we're complaining and bellowing so what Israel has rejected because Isaiah 53 is not even included in the Shabbat uh, Haftorah readings the Shabbat prophetic readings it's eliminated of course because it is so Christological that when I read it to my mother the first time she said where in the New Testament are you reading she couldn't believe I was reading out of a classic Old Testament text and so we have lost that text and lost its great meaning and as I said what we, what we have not received by the word we must receive in our experience so there's a road to Calvary ahead for the nation and in that suffering as they pass through and have no beauty that any should desire them will the, will the church itself be tested Lord when did we see you naked, thirsty, hungry will be the, the question that uh, will be before us most of the world will turn its back on this suffering people and even gloat at their condition and say they deserve it they precipitated this uh, they were unruly, they didn't care about world opinion That's look what it has cost them tough on them but there will be a remnant people in the earth that will succor them, take them in wipe their blood heal their wounds and we sang that this morning the spirit of the Lord is now upon me to heal the broken hearted there's no way to begin to assess the depth of that broken heartedness because when it comes it will come suddenly and uh, Jews are living in a kind of denial, a dream world that even if you're in Tel Aviv and Gaza is uh, steaming and, and rockets are going off you are sufficiently insulated that you can have your coffee on the veranda of a coffee house as if you're living in the best of all possible worlds but that world is going to come down and come down suddenly and so the psychological shock of being uprooted and, and cast out and pursued and stripped uh, will be the condition in which they will come to us and in which they need to be comforted by the Holy Spirit but with what grace shall we meet them if we don't meet them by the grace given us in covenant because they will be despicable they will be unclean they will be stinking they will not have had access to showers their, their clothes are running on their back their sores are mollifying and fly infested they're in pathetic condition they have no beauty that any should desire them how should we desire them except the grace of God by our covenant relationship with him enables us to be to them what he himself is so the issue of covenant is the critical factor 
in the consummation of the age for the church toward Israel and that Israel itself might be saved through it and brought into that everlasting covenant so on the same day in verse 18 the Lord made a covenant, a promise, a pledge it began by speaking it ends by speaking the God who creates is the God who speaks his speaking is an event and uh, it's on that event of his word and promise that we ought to cast ourselves Abraham cast himself on that although his body was as good as dead looking upon himself he had no descendants he was near a hundred years old uh, as was Sarah and God said look at the stars of the sky so great will your your uh, progeny be and he believed God despite every appearance to the contrary God said he believed so this is our classic father of the faith and the one with whom God makes the classic covenant that becomes the pattern of all subsequent covenant and in uh, 17 we have another visitation of the Lord when Abram is 99 years old the Lord appeared to him and said I am the almighty God walk and live habitually before me and be perfect, blameless, wholehearted, complete that's, that's an invitation to be a son of the covenant there's no way you're going to be that by human resolve God gives an ultimate like mount of uh, beatitude requirement be thou perfect and walk thou before me only possible by someone with whom a covenant has been made who can draw on the grace of God to be this with him and I will make my covenant my solemn pledge between me and you and will multiply you exceedingly and Abram fell on his face and God said to him as for me behold my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of many nations you didn't deserve this you didn't earn it there's nothing that you can perform it is something I'm simply conferring and pronouncing it is it's a covenant to be kept but the keeping of it is not the condition for its continuance the keeping of it as I've said before is rather the spontaneous and free loving response to the goodness of God in inviting us into a relationship with him for that reason we want to keep it but it's not a legal obligation that if we don't perform it we're out we have to understand that that would be a contract that's the model for the world's contract these are the conditions of a legal kind but a covenant is something transcendent a covenant is something that has come down from above from God the creator out of himself of what he is in himself and some of the biblical commentators even suggest though the texts do not give us any ground to presume it that the Father and Son and Holy Spirit are themselves covenantally related mm-hmm. the one catches that in covenant it's a superior addressing an inferior but in the Godhead there are no inferiors so that, that thought kind of suffers loss but we have to assume that God did not just pluck the concept of covenant out of the air it emanated it issued out of what he is in himself and for that reason it needs 
to be more affectionately held and observed and, and um, respected and obeyed. Obedience is a key, but it's not the obedience of uh, a legal attitude. It's the obedience of love, grateful for the benefit and the provision of this relationship with very God. If your obedience issues from that, it's an acceptable obedience. But there are few believers who have that kind of mentality. Rather, they are striving to assert rather than acting out of a love of gratitude. So I quite agree that the smoking pot of the blazing torch is symbolic of the crucifixion of Jesus. A statement well before the event, but summing up the horror, the pain, the anguish, the utterness of that sacrifice, which is a sacrifice unto death through fire, as it were. But from the very beginning of the, uh, of the making of this everlasting covenant, that is prefigured, and the Lord Himself will in time perform it. So the Lord speaks about the 400 years of slavery that is yet future for the nation, but you can say also that the oven and the torch not only presages the sacrifice of Jesus, but the Holocaust of the Jew throughout its history. There will be a suffering, there will be a devastation more than once and yet a future time before the, everything is consummated so this is a remarkable symbolic ceremony act of God that's recorded for us here but I think the number has a significance but it's equally an historic time because it gives the time for the iniquity of the Amorites to be made full so that when Israel is delivered out from Egypt, they begin the conquest of the, of the Canaanite land and bring judgment uh, that is now on time for these pagan peoples. So there are many purposes being served. 400, I'm sure, is significant. Four often designates the four corners of the earth. A hundred, I don't know, multiplied. So let's look at this companion piece in Genesis 17 in which God requires this in making my covenant between me and you verse 6 is the uh, verse 5 the promise of a father of multitudes of many nations which is reiterating the initial call of Abraham in Genesis 12 I'll make you exceedingly fruitful I will make nations of you and kings shall come from you and I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout your generations for an everlasting solemn pledge to be a God to you and to your posterity after you I have underlined and I recommend it to you in verses 6 and 7 the words I will, I will, I will you won't, I will this has nothing to do with your virtue your character, your ability I will. I will establish this covenant. And again in verse 8, another I will give to you and to your posterity after you the land in which you are a stranger and the land of Canaan for everlasting possession and I will be their God. And God said to Abraham, As for you, you shall keep therefore my covenant, you and your descendants after you throughout your generations. 
this is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your posterity after you every male among you shall be circumcised and you shall circumcise the flesh of your foreskin and it shall be a token or sign of the covenant the promise of pledge between me and you something is being registered by that act by which man acknowledges his impotence and that the flesh that is being cut off is a statement that he will not trust in flesh to succeed in any covenant promise or blessing but that the God of I will will perform what he has spoken and that always to look upon yourself and see the sign of that covenant in your circumcision is to be reminded that you should have no confidence in the flesh and in Philippians Paul speaks of it and he says for we are the circumcision who rejoice in Christ Jesus and have no confidence in the flesh so this is given of God made very clear made explicit written into our flesh that we're not to trust in flesh in any fulfillment of God's intention he will I will make my covenant between me and you I will bless you I'll be a God of you you shall be my sons and my daughters verse 13 he that is born in your house he that is bought with your money must be circumcised and my covenant shall be in your flesh for an everlasting covenant and the male who is not circumcised that soul shall be cut off from his people he has broken my covenant so what think ye of this strange requirement which will be so reduced in Jewish understanding that circumcision today is looked upon a hygienic provision and the whole spiritual significance is entirely lost to those who submit to it and elsewhere God condemns us that we're uncircumcised in our hearts and um, need to be restored to this sacred act by which we acknowledge God as God and ourselves capable of nothing now if this is true for Israel to what degree is it true for us are we also the circumcised when Paul says we are the circumcision is he speaking about Jewish believers only he's speaking about the church we are the circumcision how can he say that because we have been called into this covenant and that the the circumcision that we bear is not one made with hands but the the Jesus that was cut out from the land of the living that when we're baptized into him we're circumcised with him we're cut off and out from the land of the living and we're brought into this realm through baptism having no confidence in the flesh well it's hard to think of any other place in the human anatomy where a cutting could take place of this symbolic kind without doing a permanent injury or threatening life and yet be a visible sign that you carry in your lifetime as a nation as a people in fact it might well not be an exaggeration to say foreskin was given to be cut off not to be retained and to retain it is an act of presumption and male prowess and uh, stud uh, you know that kind of the kind of thing that Australians most of 
But a circumcised male is a humbled male. And we, and we need so to be. In Jewish religion, it's a rabbi called a mohel, M-O-H-E-L. But most circumcisions take place in, in the hospital by the birthing uh, doctor. Ariel was circumcised in Long Island. David was never circumcised. He was born in Denmark, and there, there was a stigma against circumcision. Inger went blue in the face when I, when I urged David's circumcision because to her it was inflicting him with a sign that would make him conspicuously a venereal uh, a candidate or a bearer of venereal disease. She, she understood nothing in her Gentile mind about the practice that for us Jews is so instinctive that we don't think twice about it. But I deferred to her. She went purple. And to this day, David is uncircumcised. And I wonder to what degree we're suffering the problems with him that we are because of that failure. But here, Abraham himself does it. He, he circumcises all the males of his household. And we know that when Israel subsequently under Joshua crossed the Jordan, they came to the hill of foreskins. And they could not eat this, the Passover until they were all circumcised. So it may well be that they circumcised one another. It doesn't say how or who or by what means. The same thing is true of water baptism. It doesn't matter who officiates. It's valid when you go under that water. You wouldn't want any clumsy butcher performing it. You want a sensitive man. <laughs> if we have made water baptism a trite and superficial religious requirement and fallen short of its deepest appropriation as the sign of the covenant as a circumcision made without hands to what degree are we in the covenant to what degree are we cut off from the house of Israel and it may well be that this is so widespread the superficiality of water baptism today uh, the infant sprinkling or even uh, adult immersion does not necessarily guarantee that appropriation unless we go into it with this understanding and this desire to be cut off from the flesh and so maybe the substandard condition of the church is likely to be found in the neglect of water baptism and the sign of the covenant which it confers why? because we've lost the whole sense of covenant and uh, the meaning of these practices and so we get dunked or we perform a religious obligation but we come up out of that water unchanged and still live according to the flesh so that doesn't mean that you need to be re-immersed but it does mean that you need to by faith appropriate what God says as Barry just read that and the other places in scripture uh, took place in your baptism Lord I did not realize it then in fact, I probably at that time would not even have intended it, but now I want the full measure of what that baptism represented. I don't have to repeat the act. I'm asking by faith that you would confer that reality, that I would be among the circumcised, having no confidence in the flesh, but rejoicing in Christ Jesus. When you're joined with God in covenant, you are in the position to receive every grace. I will be with you is more than just a little flippant 
remark. It means, I will impart, I will extend, I will give of those qualities of the divine kind without which you cannot be my people. So, if we're languishing and struggling through circumstances, it may well be because we're seeking to find solution humanly or in the flesh and are not in the deep place of abiding in covenant through circumcision and need to be freshly cut again because there's something about the foreskin I don't know that I can prove this but I suspect that it will grow over again if, if it's allowed to and it's even favored and cultivated you might find that fleshly protuberance showing itself so there needs to be a kind of frequency of cutting a frequency of renewal of covenant a submitting to the cross and the death of baptism uh, in any excess uh, evidence of the flesh that, that wants again to express itself and have part so we need to keep in that circumcised place we are the circumcision is a, a remarkable statement and it needs to come into our consciousness without embarrassment that the new creation implies that circumcision made without hands so he says neither circumcision nor uncircumcision counts for anything because he's countering the tendency among Gentile believers to be Judaized that somehow their faith is inadequate unless they take on aspects of the law which he sees that if you so much as condescend to one aspect of the law you forfeit all grace so we have to understand the context in which Paul is speaking in Galatians he's not negating uh, this baptism that we're referring to that's implicit in that new creation but he is negating the Jewish practice that Gentiles were being encouraged to adopt by Judaizers as somehow completing their faith and recognizing that any condescension to law negates all grace that's true for us as it was for them so circumcision is a complete cutting away there's no prospect of picking up from the flesh to supplement and to help us in tight situations and uh, what shall I say you need to be a preacher you need to be in a precarious place where you're tempted to fill in out of yourself or some proven past text when you're faced with the terror of a new word and an untested word and uh, a seemingly hostile audience there's every the flesh is beckoned to depend upon itself and rely upon its own ability rather than cast itself upon God so we preachers or others who are in precarious place of faith are faced, we face continually the issue of flesh versus spirit I'm facing it now don't think that we had all this laid out I've got a variety of books I don't know where to go to the next line or the next statement trusting the Lord for the unfolding and happy in, in hearing what I have because how dare we speak of circumcision and having no confidence in the flesh when we speak of it out of the flesh that would be a patent contradiction in terms so of necessity the subject itself must be presented in its own context and that's why the Lord has got me in my feverish condition this morning I'm substandard and uh, trusting that there will be no confidence in the flesh but you can't take up the subject out of any natural ability that you have I'm going to mediate this truth I'll bring it forth and uh, you, you rest 
I've gone between the pieces and I'll be your provision and not only here and now but in every occasion I will be your God we need to have a heightened respect for the Galatians, the Corinthians all the Gentiles that submitted to this water baptism were not just getting wet they were being cut off and out from the land of the living they were radically being separated from the flesh from paganism, from culture from ancestry and all of the remarkable idolatries that prevailed in that time the act of water baptism was the deepest consecration for those Gentile believers it needs to be made that again what did Paul call those who wanted to cut the flesh the Judaizers is a word that he used that they were like mutilators so then what is the testimony to Israel in a Gentile believer desisting from a physical circumcision and receiving the one made without hands but that having been a fruitless branch and cut off is now grafted in by this, this water baptism and the life of the sap of the root flows through this branch in a new way bearing fruit that moves Israel to jealousy that Israel now perceives in Gentiles the fruit that should have issued from its own life but being cut off from covenant they themselves are fruitless but to see the distinctive fruit of covenant blessedness coming from Gentiles who have not been physically circumcised is a remarkable testimony to the depth and significance of that which is not made with hands and uh, we're still waiting the fulfillment of that great mystery and the, and the expression of that fruit 